Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is professor and chair of the Department of Undergraduate Theology at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. A Jewish convert to Catholicism, Dr. Jeffrey Morrow teaches a wide range of courses, including the theology of Pope Benedict XVI, apologetics, the Eucharist, and the theology of the Old Testament. Dr. Morrow earned both his MA and PhD in theology from the University of Dayton and specializes in the history of modern biblical interpretation. He has given more than 50 scholarly presentations before academic gatherings, has published more than 100 articles, book chapters, entries and reference works, and book reviews, and is the author of a number of books, including Modern Biblical Criticism as a Tool of Statecraft, co-authored with Scott Hahn, Presentations of Objectivity, and Jesus' Resurrection, A Jewish Convert Examines the Evidence. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Morrow with us, and Father Hezekiah, if you could open tonight with prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Morrow. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to have you. The, uh, the floor is all yours. Great. Wonderful. So I want to begin by talking a little bit about political theory before we delve into the biblical texts themselves and the overview of salvation history. Uh, often in the modern context, not, not modern as in today, nobody cares about the Bible today in politics, but in the last couple hundred years, people would try to support their own political theories using the Bible. In the medieval period and before that, rather what you found where you found Christian leaders trying to understand how best to govern, right, the Christians in their midst. And they used scripture in a little bit of a different way because they understood themselves as living in a unified sacramental kingdom. I'm thinking particularly of the 13th century. So what I want to do today is I want to talk a little bit about the biblical growth of the political community of God, of the people of God, and how that foreshadows and points forward to the kingdom of God fulfilled, which is the church, which we'll see in the New Testament next week. There's a couple books I want to recommend that will help us kind of with this context. Uh, some of them are scholarly, some of them are more popular. For the scholarly ones, there's an excellent book called Before Church and State by Andrew Jones. So it's a study of 13th century social, the social order in the 13th century. The next one, which will be more relevant for the next lecture really is by Scott Hahn. It's called The First Society. It's on marriage, the sacrament of matrimony, 
and the restoration of the social order. I think that's actually very important because I think what you'll see as we walk through sacred scripture is that marriage and the family is the key to society. And when you get to the larger political communities, particularly in ancient Israel, you basically have large extended families. Right? That's, that's kind of important. When we think about politics, there's always this question, you know, is politics natural? Is it artificial? Is it a human thing? Is it a divine thing? What is politics? When we talk about politics as in the way in which we govern human communities, I think at that level, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, was right. It's a natural thing that humans by nature are political. We govern, we, we form communities, we interact, and there are rules that we follow. St. Augustine is very important in this history of thought for taking into account original sin and the radical harm that original sin did to us. So that's, that's pretty significant. Okay, it can be overemphasized, but it's pretty important. So as I walk through sacred scripture, my main tutor is going to be St. Thomas Aquinas. And that is because I think that St. Thomas Aquinas was a very careful reader of the Old and New Testaments. He was a very careful reader of Aristotle and a very careful reader of St. Augustine. And I think the insights, insights that he came to here are helpful to clarify for us exactly how God was fathering his family in the Old Testament how he fulfilled that in the new, and how he continues to do that now, what our role there is. So that, I think that's pretty important. When St. Thomas Aquinas looked at the Old Testament in the new, he said that while Aristotle is correct, politics is natural. And while St. Augustine is correct, original sin radically harmed our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and thus our ability really to govern, at least to govern well. It did not fully eradicate all goodness, right? This would be counter to John Calvin in, in the Reformation, right? So he would say there are still some things that we could do, you know, fairly well, like gardening, right? That's one of the examples he gives is, is planting a vineyard. We could plant a vineyard okay, uh, maybe build a house. That's another example he gives. But even marriage, marriage and family life without grace, not possible, okay? Doesn't mean you can't have a, a, you know, a, a friendly marriage doesn't mean that you can't raise children to grow in natural virtue. But even in sacramental marriages, we'll see when we get to the New Testament, it takes effort, it takes the grace of God. And this is true not only of this local community, the political community we call the family, but of the much larger political community. Right? One of the biggest areas this affects when we think about law and the government is the natural law, right? So laws are not arbitrary. God wrote a law into the very fabric of creation, which we call a natural law. But because of sin, we aren't always able easily to perceive what natural law is, nor are we able to follow it very well, right? And so we'll talk about in the Old Testament what God does in the political community of Israel to help them have better access to the natural law, to help them learn to live the natural law better, but ultimately to point forward to the coming of the New Testament, the coming of Jesus and the sacramental economy, which the New Testament shows and the Old Testament shows was really necessary. Okay, so that's kind of, that's where I want to start with that. And then we'll move from there. Um, what I think too often is done, really, this is probably since after the Reformation. I think too often in the modern period, we look to the Bible for a, uh, a, a, an exact political program that's going to fit 
every imaginable context we find ourselves in. And when we tend to do that, what we tend to do is we tend to universalize our particularity. So as a Christian, I might say, well, okay, how does this fit my context in the United States 2020, right? That's important, but that doesn't necessarily help the Nigerian Christian in Nigeria 2020 or the Australian, etc. So this is universal. So the natural law is universal. How we specify how we're going to live out love of God and love of neighbor is going to change circumstance to circumstance. I want to talk a little bit about that. So the first thing I want to talk about is the very beginning, Genesis with creation. What we're going to do, and there's two key themes, I think, that are going to be important to understand. Some of you are probably very familiar with these. The first is this notion of covenant, okay, this covenant. Covenants for ancient Israel and the other ancient societies of their time were sacred means of extending family relationships through sworn oaths. So a political community in the ancient world was very family-oriented. So the nations, they may not have understood themselves as family relations, but each nation was tied together by family, by language, by traditions, folklore, religion, etc. And when nations came together to form treaties, they often understood themselves as entering into family relationships. That's the language they used. We see this with Hittites, with ancient Egypt. They started to talk about father-son relationships. So this language of covenant becomes very important, not only for our understanding of what God is doing in the Old Testament, but what the other nations are doing as well with each other and the kings and their servants, etc. So the second idea I want to focus on is this notion of what theologians call divine condescension. And that is simply God stooping down to our level to raise us up to his. The goal is that we are created to share in God's very life, to become part of God's family, members of God's family. That's what the whole thing is about. So creation exists for us to live in a love relationship with God. So we'll talk about law. We'll talk because families have rules. Right? We all live in families. We all know what family life is like. And family life has rules that help the ordering of, it helps facilitate love. That's what the rules are there for. In a well-ordering society, that's what laws are for as well. They help, they help us live love of neighbor. And ultimately, should help us live love of God. That becomes difficult in the modern context. Why? Well, I would argue following Andrew Jones and others, that that's because the modern world, the secularized West, has taken the legal codes of Christendom, of the medieval period, that really only made sense as a unified sacramental order in light of God. But they removed God in the sacraments. And when you remove that sacramental order with God as the center, all you have left is the laws, but they don't make sense anymore because they they were meant to facilitate our love of God and our love of neighbor for love of God. They were meant to facilitate living the virtues like faith, hope, and love. It doesn't make sense in modern political discourse. All right, so we'll talk a little bit about that primarily in the next lecture. But if we turn to the beginning, we can see how this plays out with the divine condescension Right, and with the covenants already in Genesis chapter 2, with the creation of 
humanity. Right? So God placed the Garden of Eden in the east. This is chapter 2, verse 8 of the book of Genesis. There's a couple lines I want to focus on. Unfortunately, because of the time, I'm not going to be able to go to every passage and, and go with the kind of detail that they really deserve to really understand all this. But I'm hopefully I'm going to highlight a couple points I think is important from creation right through the time with Abraham into the Exodus with Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And then hopefully we'll, we'll finish with the kingdom with David and Solomon. So God places the, temp- the, uh, the temple, I'm already slipping into what I want to go with this. He places the garden in the east. Why? This is important, I think, because what you're going to see is when ancient readers, ancient Jewish readers read Genesis, they asked a couple questions. When we read Genesis, when I teach this in the classroom, my students want to ask the question, how is God doing this? Right? How does God create? It's an evolution creation controversy. Science, religion, that's, that's where they're going. That is not primarily how ancient readers read the text. When ancient readers read this, they didn't ask how. There's not a lot of answer here. How did God create? Let there be light, there was light. Rather, they asked, what was God creating and why? And the answers they gave were God was creating the world as a temple. And the human person, we were created to be priest kings, royal priests. You'll hear this again when Israel is adopted as God's firstborn son after the Exodus. And the the purpose is worship. We are called into existence out of love. God freely created us through love. He loved each and every one of us into existence. And the purpose was so that we would experience and live out this love relationship with God, which we do through worship. And that's what we'll be doing in heaven, okay, when this is all fulfilled. So the garden is placed in the east as the holy of holies in the temple faces the east, as the holy of holies in the tabernacle faces the east. Okay, there's more connections here we don't have time to go into. When God took the man in verse 15 and put him in the Garden of Eden, he put him there to till it and to keep it, as my translation, the uh, RSVCE, uses. Right In Hebrew, that's shamar and avodah. Shamar is to keep or watch over or to guard. And then the, the word used for till, avod or avodah, is a very plastic word. It's quite flexible. It can be used to work, to till or garden, to serve. It's also used, sometimes it's translated into Greek as liturgia, liturgy. It's also used for worship. Now, those two verbs, to till, to work, avad, and to keep, shamar, they are only paired together again in the Old Testament with the worship that the priests are called to do in the tabernacle, the Levites, and in the temple. That's it. In the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they only occur together again in the book of Numbers as the role the Levites have in the tabernacle. So these are priestly roles. That's how the rabbis understood this, is that Adam was given a priestly vocation. He's also given dominion. That's a royal role. So he's given this kind of priestly royal responsibility from the get-go. Politics in this context has everything to do with worship of God, priestly role, right? And love of neighbor. That's the royal role, all right? So we're going to see how that plays out. Now, we all know the story of the fall, enter the serpent and original sin. With the fall, 
Adam and Eve forfeited this royal priestly vocation. I mean, they could not completely forfeit. This was God's original vocation for humanity. Right? So God's will is not going to be undone. But they gave it up through their sin. All right? So what happens here is death enters through original sin. Their original sin, but their actual sin, rather, becomes our original sin. So their actual sin right, impedes our relationship with God from the get-go, from, from conception. So after the garden, what God does with Noah in the Noah account is he renews the covenant with creation. Now, this is important because when we, when we think about the political life of Adam and Eve, of their children, right? First Cain and Abel, but then Seth. Eventually, as, as Father mentioned earlier in the conversation, Lamech and others. Throughout this history before Noah, these are very clearly family communities. In fact, I would follow St. Augustine in On the City of God, where he reads basically Genesis 4 through the account with Noah as following two family lines, the lines from Cain and then the lines from Seth, Noah's right, I'm sorry, Adam's righteous son. And if you walk through the texts, all the genealogies follow one of those figures, either Cain or Seth. So these political and family communities are extended family units. All right, that's what's happening here. With Noah, things kind of start from scratch. We start all over again with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what we find then from the genealogies is that the, the rest of the figures into the patriarchal period, Abraham and elsewhere, are seen as descendants of those, of those sons. I'll just take a couple examples. All right, so if you look at Ham, Ham has a number of sons who have very famous names. We might say infamous names. They're notorious in the Old Testament. He has a son named Egypt. Some, trans, some of the uh, translations don't actually translate it. They just keep it in the Hebrew, Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt. That's where the Egyptians are seen as coming from. He has another very famous son, Canaan. That's where the Canaanites come from. Right? So what's happening here is the genealogies are telling ancient Israel their relationships among the nations. So all the wars, all the disputes, all the difficulties they're finding themselves in with, with the Philistines who come from Philistia, with the Moabites who are descended from Moab, right, who's a son of Lot, right, um, and the Egyptians from Egypt, Canaanites, this is one large family feud. The politics of the Old Testament, the international politics, is quite literally family politics. And that's very important, I think, because the goal was always to bring back all of these nations scattered and shattered by sin into the one family of God, the family God was fathering throughout Old Testament history. So when we get to a descendant of Shem, we get to Shem's great, 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 great grandson, and we come to the figure of Abraham. I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is pretty significant. Abraham now is not just the father of a family like Noah. Rather, he's the patriarch of an entire tribe, the Hebrew tribe, composed of many, many families. So he's the patriarch of this great family. In Genesis chapter 12, we have these promises that God makes to Abram. He's going to be a great nation, verse 2. He's going to be blessed. He'll have a great name. 
And then it says, by you, all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. In Genesis 22, as opposed to families, it says the nations, right? And it's not an accident. The nations are families. They're very large, extended family networks. So what God does here is he's going to enter into not one, but I would argue following Scott Hahn, three covenants with Abraham. Three successive covenants. First in Genesis chapter 15, then in Genesis 17, finally in Genesis 22. I'm not going to go through each of those in large detail. If you want more, I recommend reading Dr. Hahn's published dissertation, Kinship by Covenant, with Yale, which Yale University Press published back in 2009. He, he deals in far more detail than we'll be able to do tonight. The distinctions of the different covenants that God engages in with Abraham. What I want to say now is that what God is doing is not that odd in light of Abraham's historical context. What I mean by that is that these covenants are the sorts of covenants kings would enter into, tribal rulers would enter into with faithful subjects, even among other tribal groups. The difference is this. Whereas they would have their false gods, their idols, stand as witnesses to these covenants, God acts as king, as sovereign, and he enters into the covenant himself with Abram and the Hebrew tribe. So what he's doing is he's making Abraham a member of his family. All right? We can see this already with, with Adam and Eve in Genesis and creation. We see this again with Noah. God is adopting them as, as family. Here it's much more explicit. And the first covenant is in Genesis 15. This is a very typical covenant, right? Abraham is told to take the cattle and to cut them in half. Okay, now the, the blood in these sacrifices really has a twofold symbolism that's important, I think. The one is it symbolizes the gravity of what's being entered into here, right? The curse, if you will, for lack of for infidelity, lack of fidelity. If I, if I am, if I break this oath, this covenant. Let me be cut in half like these animals. That's the negative symbolism. There's also a positive symbolism. Blood represent, representing family relationship, right? So through this sacrificial oath ceremony, we are now becoming family members with God himself. Symbolically so here, what Jesus will affect in the New Testament is more than a symbol. It's a symbol that affects what it symbolizes, and that's the sacramental economy which we'll talk more about later. So what God is doing here is he's adopting the Hebrew tribe as his own firstborn son. All right, so he's, he's stepping down to our level into the political family life of second millennium BC Hebrews. He's stepping down into that, and by that, he is adopting them into his family life. All right, that's very significant, but we don't have a lot of time to stay there. So I want to move forward to the book of Exodus. I want to turn to chapter 24, but I have to give you a little background here. The Israelites, as we know, are stuck in Egypt as slaves. That's where we're at at this point in time. And they are, they are in servitude to the Pharaoh. God wants them to be used in service to the Lord. All right. I'm going to quote from Pope Benedict XVI. I think this is well worth According to this point, this is from Jesus of Nazareth, volume one. This gets you back to kind of the creation worship element 
that goes all through the Old Testament and into the New. This is what he says. He's going to cover the exodus, the liberation, the conquest, the exile, the whole history of salvation. This is what Pope Benedict says on pages 82 and following. He says, the main issue in the foreground of the struggle for liberation prior to Israel's exodus from Egypt is the right to freedom of worship. The people's right to their own liturgy. Going down further, the land was given as a space for obedience, a realm of openness to God that was to be freed from the abominations of idolatry. From this perspective, the exile with the withdrawal of the land could also be understood. The land had itself become a zone of idolatry and disobedience, and the possession of the land had therefore become a contradiction. A new and positive understanding of the diaspora could also arise from this way of thinking. Israel was scattered across the world so that it might everywhere create space for God and thus fulfill the purpose of creation suggested in Genesis. The Sabbath is the goal of creation, and it shows what creation is for. The world exists, in other words, because God wanted to create a zone of response to his love, a zone of obedience and freedom. He created what we need. We need to worship God. That's how we were created to exist. It's like water for our bodies. We need worship. We need, we need uh, ultimately, we need God's own life. And that's what's going to happen here. So in the Exodus, Israel has an evangelizing mission, as Abraham had, as the Hebrews have always had. Everybody God calls, he calls for mission. Israel is chosen. Indeed, Israel is chosen for mission. Israel is chosen to be God's royal priests, bringing the nations into fellowship with God so that all of the nations, all of God's family, scattered and shattered by sin, could experience that same love relationship God intended for Israel. That's the point. So Israel becomes God's firstborn priestly son. That's what the Passover does. The Passover sacrifices a firstborn lamb for the firstborn sons of Israel so that they could serve the Lord as priests. And the idea is this. In this kind of theocracy, right, this, this priestly nation, the families would be the center of the nation. The fathers and their firstborn sons would then kind of rule, in a sense, as priests of each of these family units. And so God ransomed them through the Passover, and then he ransomed Israel as a people through the Exodus. So the idea, and follow this, is very important. The idea is that Israel would be this priestly firstborn for all the nations to bring Egypt, Moab, Canaan, all of these nations into family relationship with God. Within that unit, the firstborn sons would mediate God's blessings to the families. That all changes with the worship of the golden calf. But before we get there, we have to get to the covenant in Exodus 24. This becomes central. It becomes central not only for our discussion today and for next week, but it becomes central in later discussions of modern politics. They don't go back where Thomas Aquinas and the medievals went to King David and Solomon, to the Israelite kingdom. They go back to Moses. And the reason is because they think this is all fake, right? In the early modern period, you start to have Machiavelli and other political theorists that argue that religion is a sham. This is, you know, these are a bunch of priests trying to exercise their leadership among people. And what they start to argue is that that's what civil leaders need to do. 
people seem to be religious, fine. Let's use that so that we can rule over them and lord it over them. It's very different than what was going on in the medieval period. All right. So back to the text of the Bible, Exodus 24. And God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu. All right. These are Levites. Right? Aaron is the high priest. Moses represents God for the people. Aaron is the high priest. And then Nadav and Abihu are the two brothers, right? sons of Aaron. Right? This will be important when we get to the New Testament because Jesus is going to fulfill this in a um, quite radical way. And then take 70 of the elders. Now, the rabbis argue these were the elders, not the old folk, Rather, elder sons, the firstborn sons, those who were ransomed in the Passover for priestly service. Take the 70 elders of Israel and worship far off. So the idea is, if the rabbis are correct, is that the firstborn sons who were ransomed as priests are now going to worship as priests. And then they erected 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they had this great sacrificial offering they slaughter the animals. They take the blood and they, they splatter part of the blood on the people, representing their participation in this oath ceremony. And then they take the remainder of the blood and they pour it on the holy objects, representing God's participation in the ceremony. Israel is being adopted as God's firstborn son. Unfortunately, we know the story. Israel then worships a golden calf, right? They quite radically rupture this, this relationship they had with God. They forfeit their role as a royal priestly nation. But God's not done with them. But I think it's important to note that after the worship of the golden calf, Old Testament Israel is never again called by that label, a royal priesthood. That label will be used for the New Testament people of God. And it's kind of significant. And we'll talk more about that later. This is also important because we saw already in chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. I want to say something about this following Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas looks at Israel and, you know, from Moses all the way to David and Solomon. And he basically says, this is about the best that we can get without the sacramental economy, without the grace of God, God's very divine life mediated to us through the sacraments. Without that perfect society, which is the church, we'll, we'll hold off on that discussion until the next week, um, we, we can't do it any better basically than what Israel did. And what they have, it's still messy, but what they have is very important. When you walk through the Ten Commandments and many of the commandments, this is natural law. You know, worship God, right? Worship God on a set day. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Honor father or mother. These are dictates that we should be able to know from reason alone, but we often don't. And in today's day, we clearly see that we don't. Well, Thomas Aquinas had an account for that. Pope St. John Paul II had an account for that following Thomas Aquinas in his Veritatis Splendor, his papal encyclical on the splendor of truth from 1993, I think. And that is that sin impedes our ability to know the natural law. I mean, there's other explanations as well. We have differing intellects, but the most important one, I think, is original sin and our actual sin. So sin makes it more difficult for us to know what God is calling us to do, even the dictates of the natural law. It also makes it very difficult, impossible, right, to follow that law, certainly perfectly. 
All right, so that's, that's important. What we also have here is we have ceremonial law and judicial law. What are those? So ceremonial law are the ways the natural law relating to love of God is specified. Right? We worship God on Saturday or on Sunday. Right? So those specifications can, and they do, change. So ceremonial law specifies how we love God. How do we offer sacrifices? Okay? Judicial law specifies how we love neighbor in the concrete circumstances. This is not relativism, so let me just be clear. When I talk about how this is circumscribed, just think about the laws of gleaning in the Old Testament. This is just one great example. I was just speaking with a colleague about this recently in preparation for this, this webinar. Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, it's clear we have to love neighbor. We have to take care of the poor in our midst. Well, well how? Well, for the Old Testament, they specify the laws of gleaning. When you're walking through the field, maybe your neighbor's farm in their field, but what you can pick, you can eat, right? Because you have a right to basic nutrition. That's great. And that works fine for ancient Israel. You're in farmland. But how does that work in modern inner city New York, right? <laughs> the laws of gleaning aren't so helpful there, at least at the literal level. So those judicial laws have to be specified in ways that are concrete and applicable in our time. Does that make sense? I think that's really important. So that's what's going on here is God is teaching Israel the law that they had forgotten from their own sins, from original sin, and also their deformation in Egypt, right? They were giving an improper formation. Think about love of God. What's the first thing they do when they're getting the laws? They make a golden calf to worship. Where did they learn that? Egypt, right? So they don't know how to follow the natural law. So God is giving them laws that should be natural, and he's specifying how to live those. So that's the basics that we're finding here in this kind of new political community God is creating. It's not a political community for all times. It's a political community for that time. He's fathering his family in those concrete circumstances so that, one, they can learn to worship God and love neighbor. And then, two, they can teach that to the nations. All right, so from this time period of Moses up until the beginnings of the monarchy, right, we have, we have a, a big mess going on. Right? We have the period of the judges. We're not going to get into all that right now. Um, I would say that you know, we've been reading, if you're following along with the daily mass readings, this is where we are. We are the very beginnings of the monarchy. We just finished the readings with King Saul becoming the first king. And now today we just began the readings for King David replacing King Saul. And what I would say about that is Israel is being led by judges, but God already knows there's going to be a king. Right? You could look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, for example. We have the laws of the king, what a king should not do. You will, in the land, appoint for yourselves a king. Now, this is a concession God makes, right? Israel's going to want a king to be like the other nations. On the one hand, they should just have God as their king. On the other, as you're reading this history, you have to understand, Eli is ruling them as a priest, you know, and his sons are a disaster. He's a disastrous father, right? And his priesthood is, isn't all perfect either. So Samuel replaces him, both as priest, but as a judge. So Samuel's ruling the people. Samuel's pretty good. I don't want to knock God's prophet. Um, but his, his sons are also a disaster, right? I'll spare you the details, but they're committing adultery in front of the tabernacle. I just gave you one of the details, but it's a disaster. And so Israel is tired of being led by these fathers and their tyrant sons. 
They want something different. They want organization like the other nations around them. And God warns them, the king will, will rule it over you. The king will um, make a mess of things. Uh, if you think the priests are bad rulers, wait till you get the kings. And, and obviously God is correct. But they get a king, and this is beautiful in the sense that God right, comes down to our level to lift us up to his. That it is through this institution, the monarchy, and it's through a real mess of kings. I mean, David's the best, and yet he commits adultery, right? He com commits murder. Uh, he sins again and again and again. And yet, God steps into that history and brings about the coming of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the monarchy, right, of the, of the Davidic kingdom. So let's get, to the, let's get to kingdom. Let's get to the kingdom. Let's get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is that passage I was just speaking to. Samuel speaks to the people. So verse eight, chapter 8, verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Going down further, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. But the point is, he's not going to be what he's supposed to be. And that is a ruler who rules through service, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the two key sacraments of service, holy orders, marriage, you want to understand the key to the political order and how it should be, that's it, right? Marriage and family life, priesthood, right? We need both. In the 13th century, some figures like St. Louis IX, one of the few rulers who was canonized a saint, they got that, all right? They got that. Israel doesn't, doesn't quite get that. David gets it, Solomon a little bit, Josiah, Hezekiah, but most of the kings do not get it. What they should have done, right, I'm going to digress a minute here, is they should have done, they should have done what, during Thomas Aquinas' day, St. Louis IX tried to do. I'm going to read you a passage from Andrew Jones's dissertation before church and state in the 13th century. Why? Because it gets at the ideal of the kingship of Israel. It wasn't usually lived out, but it was the ideal. And it asserts that as its ideal, right? right? So this is the 13th century. This is a quote from Andrew Jones. Was a sacramental world in which the material and the spiritual were everywhere and always present together. The spiritual power was the power of priests to dispense the grace that sustained this society in charity. And they wielded the spiritual sword of excommunication against the mortal sinner. The temporal power was the power of the layman to organize the world of things and events. And they wielded the temporal sword against the violent. Both powers and their swords were the power of the church through which it worked out its salvation in time, end quote. Why is that significant? It's significant because the church is the fulfilled kingdom of Israel, all right? Now, so... In Israel, with David especially, you basically have the rule of Israel kind of twofold, with a lay king, a layman, right, tribe of Judah, but also the high priest of the tribe of Levi, descendant of Aaron. And in a sense, they were working for the same end. They wanted the people to follow God. 
the priests regulated love of God, the ceremonial law, worship. The king regulated judicial law, love of neighbor. But all of it was ordered to the love of God. All of it was ordered to growth in holiness and evangelization. We could say the interior life and apostolate. We could use a lot of different words. It's the same idea, love of God, love of neighbor. That's what was going on in the 13th century in France, and it was modeled on the Davidic kingdom. That was kind of the idea, king, pope, right? Same sort of idea. The temporal and the spiritual interpenetrated with the same goal, all right? I'll give you one more excerpt, and then we'll go back to, to David. One more excerpt, and it gets at kind of punishments. Why were kings concerned with excommunications in the medieval period? Why did the members of religious orders and the Inquisition and others, why were they concerned with temporal matters? Right, because both were concerned with the salvation of souls and the peace. Right? So, quote, against the violence of sin, think murder, the temporal power was that authority that used force, and the spiritual power was that authority that invited the sinner back to the realm of true peace, that preached penance and offered mercy. And so a return to grace through the sacraments. The spiritual sword sought to scare the sinner back into the realm of grace before he really left it. Excommunication was first medicinal. If this failed, the temporal sword would be deployed to frighten or force him into accepting a worldly peace. This exterior peace not only protected the society of true peace from the violent, but also created in the sinner habits that were conducive to acquired virtue and conversion. I could say more, I could quote more, but that's enough for now. The idea is, is that the temporal and the spiritual were both ordered to growth and virtue. Sorry, that's the point I'm trying to get across here. That's what was going on in the kingdom of Israel, at least when it worked well. Now, we can look at this and say, this is what we need now. We need a theocracy in the United States. This is what we need all over the world. Well, that worked really well, more or less, in 13th century Catholic France, which was united as a sacramental, unified social order. We don't have that anywhere, right? That worked well in second millennium and early first millennium BC, Israel as a nation. That's gone. And so what we're going to talk about in the next class, in light of the New Testament, is well, what do we do now? How do we, how do we start? where we find ourselves. That's not the Old Testament context. Why? What God is doing is moving forward to a context where he can burst the bonds of the temporal order by entering history and unleashing his divine grace. That's where everything changes. So what you're going to see is Israel is at its, the height of its power with King Solomon, David's son. And yet spiritually, where is it? Are people following the law? Is Solomon a faithful king? I mean, Solomon, one of the greatest kings of Old Testament Israel, Solomon erects statues to false gods in the very temple he has built. Right? So it's a mixed bag. He's not perfect. None of the rulers are. None of, the, none of our rulers are. So what happens is when Israel is at the lowest point, occupation after occupation, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, then we have Jesus enter as the fulfilled Davidic king, 
And what does he do? He sets up a countercultural community, a new kingdom, which is none other than the old kingdom. And what does he do? He transforms them. So it doesn't matter if the Romans rule the empire. Jesus Christ is king, right? This is already foreshadowed in these texts. I'll give you just, this is a, a, a tangent. This is a clue, I think, to reading certain portions of scripture. I want to think about Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 40 years later. Leviticus is primarily about the priests and the Levites and their relationship serving the laity, the lay tribes. Deuteronomy is primarily concerned with the lay tribes, how they relate to each other in Israel and how they relate to the priesthood. That becomes a paradigm for reading much of later Old Testament texts. Let me give you two quick examples. One, the history told in what we're reading right now, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, is retold in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Later, the history told in 1 Maccabees, right before the coming of Jesus, is retold in 2 Maccabees. Scholars often look at these as just completely contradictory accounts. I think what they're missing by the omissions and the inclusions, what they're missing is, is the, the proper glasses for reading them. Now, I can't see anything. But if I were to put on my historical temporal glasses, that's what First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are about, much like Deuteronomy. They're focused on kind of the layman's view, the king's view, right? the temporal view of things. Same with First Maccabees. But then if we put on the priestly glasses, right, of Leviticus, worship, temple, priests, right, love of God, that's what First and Second Chronicles are doing. They're rereading the history of First Samuel through Second Kings in light of the fulfillment of the temple, the worship and the priests, right, love of God. Second Maccabees is doing the same thing with First Maccabees, right? This is significant, right? I'm going to quote my favorite commentary on First and Second Chronicles by Dr. Scott Hahn. This is significant because, as he calls this, the kingdom of God is liturgical empire. Because this is the only time we see that language used in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God. We have it all over the Gospels. Kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of heaven. The closest that we have, we have in the book of Daniel, a kingdom God creates. But we, but we only have this language of kingdom of God, literally the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of the Lord in First and Second Chronicles. And it's the Davidic kingdom. That's what Jesus is fulfilling. So I'm going to quote from page, real quickly, 35. This is what Scott says about the kingdom of Israel under David. God's people is to be understood fundamentally not as political, geographic, or an ethnic reality, but as a religious or liturgical one. Israel, the kingdom of God, is a liturgical empire, an empire of prayer. In this kingdom, life is liturgy. And worship is aimed at the transformation of the world into a temple of the living God. That's what we're all about, right? So the best societies that we can even imagine today are ones where laws facilitate, or at least if they don't facilitate virtue, they at least make virtue easy. I don't know where those, where those societies are, right? But that's, that's what we have to do. So, so how do we do this? We'll see how we do this. It's going to be very different than what Israel did. And yet there's going to be a lot that's the same, okay? What David does is he sets in place the kingdom 
And he sets it in place in such that he recognizes the focus on worship. This is really one of the big differences between David and Saul. I remember when I was first taught this um, in a classroom, let's just say it was a little bit more skeptical than the way I approached the Bible. My teacher lamented Saul. Saul and David both screw up. Saul gets punished and David gets blessed. What's the big deal? God's not fair. Well, there's much more going on than that. First of all, any Jewish reader reading this will know off the bat, Saul comes from the wrong line. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. The ruler has to come from David, from, sorry, Judah. But the biggest difference is that Saul sees the worship of God as a political expedient. And, and we'll wrap it up now. Saul sees the worship of God as a political expedient. It serves his kingdom. David sees his kingdom as order to the worship of God. That's ultimately the biggest difference. It's David's humility and David's wanting to orchestrate everything to the love of God. Right? The kingdom's going to crumble, as we know from the history. The kingdom will crumble after Solomon because the kings become tyrants who want to amass wealth for themselves like Solomon. But they neglect the worship of God. And so everything crumbles, right? And that's going to set the stage now for what's to come in the new, where Jesus then picks up the pieces where we left off. He fulfills the Davidic kingdom, and he unlocks the sacramental economy, which becomes the key for the transformation of the political order from within, from family life. Okay, we can end there, so we have some time for questions. There's a lot I left out, but we only have 50 minutes. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. And uh, it really is a joy to have you back. I think it's been over a year since you were here. I know you uh, last time, I think you gave a talk on the uh, documentary hypothesis. So it's a pleasure to have you with us again. Uh, we're now going to switch over to Q&A. Our first question, I'm combining two questions, one from Bill and one from Julian. And uh, I'll read it. Uh, like this. Bill is first wondering, does the church recommend a particular form of government? And I think the Im implication is here, a particular form of government across all time. And Julian is wondering, attached to this, it appears in the Bible that monarchy is superior, is, a, is the superior form of government uh, over anything else. Would you say that is true? Okay, for the first, the answer to the first question is no, the church does not recommend any particular form of governance. Um, There's a really wonderful document, um, the papal encyclical uh, from 2005, I believe, of Pope Benedict XVI, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, has a whole section on, um, a wonderful section on um, uh, the Catholic role in politics, the political order. So there is no one political government that the church recommends, uh, but we do get indications of how we engage in politics, right? How we are to do that as Catholics, but not any specific, neither government nor political party. We have complete freedom with regard to that. So with regard to monarchy, I mean, we could debate, is monarchy the best, um, you know, um, if you had a good king, it might be, um, but there's problems with monarchy as well. They, all, all the political orders we have, we're just doing the best we can to figure out, you know, how to live justly and to govern wisely. I think that's the best we have. Great. Uh, there is a couple people, couple people writing in for recommended resources that you would provide. I'm just going to point to the handout that we'll have up on the website once the recording is on there. Dr. Mara has listed a good number of resources um, that, you know, can serve for your reading plan for 2020. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and it's broken in by different categories. 
you know, popular kind of easier ones to approach and then more scholarly. So uh, we really uh, thank you for that, Dr. Mara. That's a great resource. And uh, there's another question coming in here from Paul, who's uh, wondering if you can give him some course correction here. So he's, he's basically saying if he's following you correctly, the more um, the political structure, the more the government is intertwined with religion, uh, the better. And to him, it seems like Islam would be a good example of this. And he's wondering, um, is that true? Is it a good example of government uh, based off of what we've uh, been describing here? Uh, that's a not, yes and no, right? No on one level because we would say that, that this is ordered not simply religion but to the love of God, right? So the sacramental economy. So the example I would say, one of the best examples I, have, I would say of like a theocracy, mm-hmm. if you will, um, would be 13th century France. But that's particularly because of how everybody lived in a universal Catholic sacramental order. Mm-hmm. Right, you wouldn't be under Islam. You wouldn't be able to do that. How I would, you know, wouldn't be able to celebrate. You wouldn't be able to participate in the Eucharist or or encourage others to do that under Sharia law. Um, so obviously it couldn't be in that sense. That model, however, is not that odd. That's the majority of the world has been. You know, this idea of a separation of church and state is modern Western. And it's kind of new, um, and and I don't think it's necessarily the best, but it's what we're in. So. Um, what I would say is, is not that it has to be religion and politics intertwined so much as the governing laws should at least facilitate or at least make easy living a life of virtue. But that doesn't just include virtue towards others, mm-hmm. but virtue to God, right? It should facilitate both, you know, faith, hope, love, as well as temperance, prudence, right? Um, fortitude. Uh, justice, all of those things. There's a couple questions coming in here. Um, one is, is there uh, basically asking if there's a resource exploring that time where there was a theocracy uh, within France? I would just point, there is a talk in our library uh, by Christopher Check, Crusading King, the story of St. Louis the Ninth. So we will link that in the um, not in the email, but we'll have that uh, associated as a resource for the uh, talk. Uh, so, you, but also you can search that in our library to find that one. I think Andrew Jones's book, "Before Church and State," is my favorite text on that. There you go. Okay, good. And then uh, Gregory's wondering if you could just repeat real quick what were those three covenants with Abraham? Yeah, Genesis fifteen, seventeen, and twenty-two. And I'm I'm really indebted to Dr. Hahn for this. You know, scholars often look at them as three contradictory accounts of the same covenant, Genesis 15, 17, 22. And he shows, no, no, no. They're basically successively incorporating the three promises from Genesis 12 into a covenant. So the first one is a basic kinship type covenant where God enters into a family relationship with Abram. Then he commits adultery with Hagar. So then he's demoted to a covenant of a treaty in Genesis 17, enter circumcision. And then because of the binding of Isaac and his fidelity there, he's given an unconditional covenant grant where God swears an oath by himself. So Genesis 15, 17, and 22. There is a question coming in from uh, Father Shear. He's wondering if you could just, uh, you had mentioned the uh, priesthood at the beginning with uh, Levites. He's wondering, when we speak of presbyters uh, now, do we mean not simply elders, but firstborn sons uh, who are our new priests? 
No, no. So I, the reading of firstborn sons and Levites in the Old Testament that I'm following here mm-hmm. understands that as the fathers and firstborn sons, they get replaced by the tribe of Levites. So then the sons of Aaron and their descendants become the priests. And what Jesus does is he inaugurates a new priesthood of the firstborn. He's the firstborn of God. So now you're not a priest because your father was a priest. You're not, even if he was, you're not a priest because of a tribe. You're a priest because you were ordained. You're given the grace of God through the sacrament of holy orders. You're now a priest because Jesus is a priest, right? The firstborn son. So he elevates that primordial priesthood, that early natural priesthood via sacrament. Vladimir writes in, he says, um, He's an Orthodox Christian. Uh, so for him, the model of this liturgical empire is most naturally the Byzantine Empire. He's asking, would you think that this is a viable example? And I think implied in this question is, is it a viable example for today? It can be, but I, don't, I think it breaks down today in most contexts that I can think of. Um, and so I, I think we'll see this in the next talk. I think the answer is not, so much our concern with instituting any particular political model. Rather, what we have is we have what the early Christians did in, in Acts under the Roman Empire. We live as full Christians, as evangelizing Christians, under whatever political order we're in. And the key is that we have to learn to seek for holiness ourselves, within our families, and help others to do the same. And I think that's really the message of the New Testament there. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll conclude there. Dr. Morrow, thank you so much for your thank time. You so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure having you here. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.